0: I want to invite you to turn to Romans 8, and we're going to look at verses 31 through 39. And before we do, let's call on the Lord to bless the preaching and hearing and receiving of his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that you are like a man who scatters seed and some falls by the wayside and is trampled underfoot and some falls on stony ground and doesn't have the root to endure and is scorched and some falls... Among the thorns and is choked out, and some falls on good soil and bears fruit thirty-six to even a hundredfold. Lord, we ask that we would be that latter soil, that you would till the soil of our souls this morning. That Father, you would cause your voice to be heard, your word to take root, your word to change us by the power of the Holy Spirit through the finished work of our Savior and his continual intercession for us. Lord Jesus, please minister to us this morning. We pray that you would free us from the love of sin and the fear of condemnation and that you would cause us to run with endurance, having our eyes fixed upon you, knowing the blessings that we have in you. Father, please help us. We are weak and needy. We are insufficient. You are all powerful. And so we call on you, Lord, to be at work among us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 8, beginning in verse 31. Paul, remember, has just made that great declaration, all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So all the suffering, all the hardship, he's made that statement. God's working everything, even the sin, he's working it all together for good for those who love him, only for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And now Paul is going to Drive all of this home, the meaning of these things in the most powerful way, beginning in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This ends the reading of God's holy word to us this morning. When I was about 17 years old, I was working at a very large um, company, and I was accused of something I didn't do. And it was a serious accusation, and a lot of the bosses who ran the company brought me in and sort of interrogated me, and, and I knew I was guilty of doing a lot of really bad things, but I had not done this. I had not done this unless it had happened unbeknownst to me. I was innocent of this, and yet in the interrogations, a sense of condemnation and fear and terror came in. How, how can I stand in the face of people who are convinced I did something very awful that I didn't do? And then after hours of interrogation, they brought in a lie detector test, and I failed. The lie detector test, though I had done nothing wrong. And I was terminated from my job. Thankfully, I recovered not there, but elsewhere. But as I thought about this passage and I thought about that experience, it hit me that oftentimes believers, as we look at the circumstances of our lives, we look at the difficulties, the opposition, as we look at the challenges, as we see the tribulation and the sufferings, the world's hatred toward us, and then as we wrestle with our own sin and and the accusations of Satan and How could you do this if you're a Christian or God isn't for you? Look at your situation. Your life is not health, wealth, and prosperity. Things are not just flowing and bountiful riches and wonderful health and all these wonderful things. How can God be for a people who are despised and persecuted, a people that have this indwelling sin, Paul says in Romans 7, that causes them to cry out at times, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death and the accusations of the evil one? There are times when those charges from the world and the evil one come towards us with such a force that we start to doubt. Does God love me? Am I really justified? Will I really go to glory? Am I really heading for all those wonders that Jesus Christ talked about when he talked about eternal life and all of its various beauty and glory. And we start to feel like I did. Though I knew I had not done the things that I was being accused of, I started to doubt and fear and worry. And the condemnation starts paralyzing. And there's a power to condemnation. There's a power to opposition. It works on us. We're not Stoics. There's there's a sense in which we are deeply grieved when we are opposed or accused or condemned in some way unjustly. And so the Apostle Paul, looking at the situation, and I think it's not just the suffering. I think it's primarily the suffering that's in view here of believers. And he's told them, look, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And those he foreknew, he predestined, Paul says, he chose us. He effectually calls us, he justified us, he glorifies us, it's all a done deal, it is an innocent sign sealed and delivered to the believer, and all things, all the hardship, all the sin, all the suffering, it's all going to work together for the believer's good in the end, and it's going to work for the purposes of God in making his son the firstborn among many brethren. And yet we have those voices of accusation. It's interesting, there are four questions in the first part of our text. There are four questions, you'll notice those. Um, who can be against us? It's the first question, if God is for us, who can be against us? The second question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect, in verse 33. The third question, in verse 34, who is to condemn? And the fourth question, in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? There's four questions Paul's asking and. What Paul's going to do, our text will divide into two parts. First, he will consider the, the evidence the evidence that, that nothing can stand against us, nothing can oppose us. He's going to consider that negatively, and then he's going to tell us the positive side of how these things work. So notice first negatively, he asks the question, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son— But gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things there was one thing that I could not do when I was falsely accused I had no evidence I could point to and say here is definitive evidence that I am not guilty of this here is definitive evidence that I can point somebody to there was no way I could I could point to any evidence that in any way vindicated me before accusers. And notice that Paul is acting in a sense as a lawyer. He is coming in and he's saying, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now notice the four questions. It's interesting. He doesn't say what can be against us. He doesn't say, is the suffering against us? He doesn't say, is the law against us? Because let me say this this morning. The law can condemn you. If you're not in Christ, the law will condemn you. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. But the law does have the power to condemn on Judgment Day everyone who's not in Christ. If you are not in Christ by faith, the law does have the power to condemn. And so Paul is not saying, what can condemn us? Notice he uses that personal pronoun, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn And then, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Now, I think if we go to ask that question and answer it, it becomes very apparent that the answer to that question is that men could possibly stand against us, tell us that we're cursed, despise us, tell us that we are outcasts, that we're liars, that we're deceivers. And then there's Satan, there's principalities and powers, and he's the great accuser of the brethren. And he stood, you'll know that account, I hope, in, in Zechariah 3, where Joshua the high priest is standing before God and Satan comes and, and he, he says, look at his filthy garments, look at all the sin on him, look how guilty he is. And God says, I've removed his filthy garments, I've clothed him with righteous robes. The accuser of the brethren stands there to accuse the people of God. He uses nations against the church. He uses political powers against the church. He's behind all of the persecution of believers. Let me say this this morning. While we don't blame Satan for our personal sin, Satan is behind all the persecution, all the tribulation aimed at the church, and yet with all his malicious power and whatever he may have to do against believers, the Apostle Paul says, how do we know? How do we know that God is for us and that, that in the end, nobody really can stand against us? How do we know that we're not condemned? How do we know? How, how can we be assured? What evidence can we point to? And he doesn't say, you've lived a holy enough life. I want to emphasize that. You are called... To live a godly life. You are, we are redeemed to live godly lives. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And yet it is not holiness that is the evidence Paul points to. Notice what does Paul do? Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Here's the evidence. And he takes us right to the foot of the cross. And that's Sinclair Ferguson, ground zero at the foot of the cross. If you go anywhere else, you don't get the evidence that you need. He takes you to ground zero at the foot of the cross. And in the most magnificent statement, perhaps in the Bible, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? He's asked this question in the negative, who can stand against us? And and he's saying, no one, no one can. How do I know that no one can stand against us? Because God the Father took his most beloved possession, his everlasting son. He took the son of God, God himself. He gave him up. Notice that Paul says, He who did not spare his own son. Now, now we all know that believers are sons and daughters of God, that God has sons. I am a son of God. If you're in Christ, you are a son and a daughter of God. And yet notice the way that Paul strategically writes this as he points to the evidence. He says, he who did not spare his own son, he is uniquely the son of God. He is God the son, I want to say this this morning no matter what happens to you in the way of suffering trial tribulation sin that you're grappling with and repenting of and the condemnation of satan coming in to attack you there is one place you constantly 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 need to cast your eyes back on and that is that god the father did not spare his own son he gave him up to the cruel death of the cross. He gave him up to the powers of hell. He gave him up to all the malice of the nations and to the men who crucified him, and he gave him up to his own wrath. And at the moment when Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father was not sparing his son. You have to get that. The evidence that God is for us And that nothing or no one can stand against us is that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us vicariously in our place as a substitute. He took the wrath you deserve. All the sin was laid on him. All the guilt that you've done was laid on him. All the corruption in you was laid on him. All the wrath that you deserve was laid on him. The father did not spare sin. So marvelous. So marvelous is this. And so overwhelming ought it to be to us that Charles Spurgeon said, when I think that God did not spare his son, I think that it feels to me as if God loves me more than he loved his own son. That should sink in. I'll read it to you, the the, the verbatim quote. When we consider that God gave up his son to death for us, we would almost think that God loved us more than he loves his son. If that isn't powerful enough to convince you as a believer that God is for you, then nothing's going to convince you. That is the evidence. That is the, who can stand against us? No one. What can stop the eternal purposes of God from coming to fruition and him giving you the everlasting inheritance? Nothing. If he gave up his most precious possession, how will he not with him also not freely give you all things? If God was willing to give up a, a being of infinite beauty and value, the Son of God, the Son he delighted in, Jesus said, I always do the will of my Father. He was in the bosom of the Father. He was face to face with the Father from all eternity. The Son of God that the Father loved and and begat from the foundations of the world and lived in eternal fellowship with, he gave him up for you. You can't even get your mind around that. There's nothing that you own. There's nothing that anyone has that even comes close to helping you understand the value of the Son of God not being spared but given up for us. There is no way you can draw any analogy. You could think of the whole world with all of its riches, with all of its pomp, with all of its power and all of its experiences and everything. And if all of that was laid on an altar, it is still infinitely less valuable than the Son of God being offered up for us. God put God on the altar. He gave himself up for us. He laid down his life for us. The father willingly said, I love my people and I'm going to redeem them. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to give up my infinitely perfect son to be a ransom for their souls. And I'm going to atone for all of their sins. Notice that Paul moves from that first question and answer to that second. And it, it sort of naturally flows. Well, who can be against us? Who shall bring any charge? against God's elect those that God has given to the son in eternity those that he chose in his son before the foundation of the world and said my son you will die for them you will lay down your life for them you will take it again you will bring them to glory you will bring many sons to glory who will lay a charge against God's elect there is a there is a boldness in the question who can bring any charge against you if you are one of the elect that the Father has given the Son freely by grace, freely by undeserved mercy and grace, that he chose in Christ. And notice the answer. I love this. In, in just a simple stroke, he goes back to Romans 8.1, and he goes back to Romans uh, 3.21 to 30, and he says, it is God who justifies. The only person that you need to worry about is God. That's what Paul's saying. The only person you need to worry about is God. You don't need to worry about what the president thinks about you. You don't need to worry about what world powers think of you. You don't need to worry about what somebody in church thinks about you in one sense. In one sense, what Paul's saying is it is God who justifies. And Paul has already told us in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation. If there's no condemnation now, there's not going to be condemnation on Judgment Day. That's the point. If you're in Jesus, if the Father has given his son for you, if you were chosen in him and he gave up his own son and did not spare him, then who is going to condemn you because God is the one who justifies. God has accepted his people. He has imputed righteousness to them. He has cleansed us of our sins. He has washed them away. I want to read this quote. It is one of the most wonderful quotes I've ever ever read in my life. John Calvin Romans 8.33 says believers are very far from being involved in the danger of condemnation. I want to go very slowly with this quote. Believers are very far very far from being involved in the danger of condemnation since Christ by expiating their sins, by blotting them out, has anticipated the judgment of God, and by his intercession not only abolishes death, but also covers our sins in oblivion, so that they come not to an account. That's an amazing statement. Christ has has made us very far from condemnation on Judgment Day, because he anticipated the judgment of God He lived the life we could never live. He died the death we deserve to die on the cursed tree and became a curse for us. And he expiates our sins. And I love Calvin's language. He covers our sins in oblivion so that they come not to an account. So that means when Satan comes in and he attacks as he did to Luther and as he did to Bunyan and as he does maybe to many of you with condemn, condemn, condemned, condemned for some sin in your past or some sin that you've fallen in presently and repented of, condemned, condemned, condemned. The Bible says, who is he who can condemn? It is God who justifies. And then notice he goes further. I love this. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. What does Paul do? Paul says, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. He he doesn't say, look at your own life with the good works. Earlier in the chapter, he said, if you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we're called to put sin to death, but Paul doesn't even bring that up here. He doesn't say, look at how you're putting the deeds to death of the body to death, and you'll know that there's no condemnation, he says, who is to condemn? It is Christ who died. It is Christ who died. And then there's the stages of Jesus' work. Notice this. I love this. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. And then you could insert more than that, who is at the right hand of God, Who indeed is interceding for us. How do I know as I go through trials and difficulties and affliction and suffering and persecution. How do I know that God is for me. Christ Jesus died for you. He was raised for you. He's at the right hand of God the Father for you. He's even now living to make intercession for you. That's how you know. That's the evidence. That's Paul saying look at Jesus. You don't look at yourself to know that you're not condemned. You don't look at yourself to know that God's for you. You don't look at your circumstances. Let me say that very carefully this morning. There are a lot of us who fall into the deadly trap of looking at our circumstances to see whether God is for us or not. Things seem to be going well. The Lord brought in extra money for this. I look at these kindnesses from God and I say, God is for me. And then sickness hits. A loved one dies. You lose your job. God must not be for me. And we fall into that deadly trap of Job's friends. Job, there must be some sin in your life or everything would be going right. There must be some, you must have done some very unrighteous things. And Job had done unrighteous things. God rebukes him, though he was upright and godly. God rebukes him at the end of the book. Who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? And, and Job repents and puts his hand over his mouth and says, I don't know anything like I should know it. And yet Job's friends telling him, look at your circumstances, Job. Look, how can God be for you? How can God be for you when your children have died and you, you have this horrible affliction and, and God just took away all your possessions and you're a cursed man, Job? And the Apostle Paul reaches down and he says, if you want to know that God's for you, you look at the cross and you look at Jesus Christ and you set your eyes on Jesus and by faith realizing what he's done for you, you know that God is for you, no matter what circumstances are happening in your life. I want to say this this morning. This is so needful. This is the most needful thing for all of us because if we get it wrong here, We're either going to become self-righteous and we're going to walk in self-righteousness, trusting in our own works. Or we're going to walk away from God because we're going to say, how can a loving God do this to me? I want to say this this morning, too. People ask the question, how can a loving God? And that's the question. How do do I know God loves me? God loves his elect. How How do I know that he loves me? Paul points to Jesus and what he's done for us. Um. When people ask the question, how can a loving God let this happen to me? How can a good God let this happen to me? If you got what you deserve from the good God of the universe, it would be eternal hell. That's what the good and holy and upright and wise and loving God who loves holiness should render to us. The psalmist says he has not treated us according to our sins. Every one of us should be in hell forever. Every one of us, starting with me, should be in hell forever. How can the good God not treat us? That's the better question, isn't it? How can the good and holy and loving and perfectly just and wise God who loves righteousness and uprightness not send us to hell? Because he spared not his son. Because he gave him up for us. And I know that that God loves me. And I am assured that that God is for me. And I know that whatever's happening in my life, that God is going to bring me to glory because he gave his son. And he said, if you want to know if God loves you, Paul says, if you want to know that all things are going to work together for good for you, who love God, then you look at the cross and you see what was done there. I love that quote by Augustine. The cross was the pulpit and the sermon was love. The cross was the pulpit, and the sermon was love. And it's the love of God the Father who spared not his Son. It's the love of Christ who died for us and rose and who now is at the right hand of the Father interceding for you. How do you know that you're going to make it? How do you know you're going to endure? Because Jesus Christ is interceding. You better have that right, and you better be able to say, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him against that day. And you better be able to say... He who began a good work in me will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Because if we don't get that and we turn inward and we start to focus on our performance, we will either become self-righteous or paralyzed by fear and terror and depart from the living God. And so we go back to Jesus, we go back to the cross, we go back to the gospel, and it keeps working, and it keeps working, and it keeps working, and it works in your circumstances, it works on your sin. What do you do when you sin? John says if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. What do I do when I fail? I go back to the cross and I go back to Jesus and I say, Lord Jesus, you have paid the debt for, for this. I am grieved over my sin. I hate my sin. I hate that I've sinned against you. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me. Wash me. Pardon my iniquity. And Jonathan Edwards, this is a bold and a daring thing to say, but I think he's right because God owes us nothing but hell by nature. Jonathan Edwards says, salvation is an absolute debt to the believer because Christ has finished the work of redemption for him or her. God owes you salvation if you are trusting only in Jesus Christ. God owes it to you. If he didn't give it to you, he would be saying that Christ's work wasn't sufficient. And Paul says he did not spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? It is Christ who died and is furthermore risen and at the right hand of God. Shall tribulation, notice the last question, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? What can separate you? Jesus said this. He said, do not fear man who can kill the body and has nothing left they can do. They can kill you and then that's it. Fear him who can throw both soul and body in hell. And this is the flip side. What can separate you from the love of God in Christ? all so tribulation, famine, persecution, nakedness, peril, sword, nothing. Paul functionally calls the whole universe to try to bring an accusation against Christians, and it fails. Paul summons the whole of the universe and says, whatever it is, notice, notice this, Verse 38, he calls the whole universe. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. It's as if Paul's reaching for the whole universe and saying, what can separate you from the love of God in Christ? What can bring you to condemnation if you've been loved by him and justified by him? And Paul says, nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's going to be the most imbalanced sermon that you ever hear. Secondly, very quickly, he puts this positively. There's a sense where those questions were him challenging the negative assertions, but he goes above and beyond it. It's not just, it's not just that we're going to make it. There's a comedian I really like who um, laughs at people that say at the work week, I think we're going to make it. He's like, make it where? And then you hit Friday and they're like, we made it. And he's like, yeah, a lot of us thought we would. <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a sense where the Christian life can kind of be like this. Well, I'll make it. You know, you think we're going to make it? I think we'll make it. And notice what Paul says. He goes beyond a defense against the negative charges. Notice what he says in verse 37. No, in all these things, that is in all the tribulation, suffering, trial, challenges, temptations, and I would even say sin, though this is largely focusing on suffering. I would include the sin because we've seen that already. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. I remember as a young Christian reading that, I had heard it. I I went to a fundamentalist Baptist school when I was young, and we always sung the hymn, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So to the point that you don't like it anymore, because we just sang it over and over and over and marched like we were in the army all the time. I'm in the Lord's army. Um, And I didn't get it. I didn't get the greatness of what Paul was saying. Paul is Paul is saying this is a magnificent statement. How can you be more than a conqueror? It doesn't even make any sense. Either you conquer or you get conquered. Paul, Paul uses a very specific Greek word. He says, We are over, over victorious. We are more than conquerors. That, that there's a sense where every single thing that happens to us is victory for us in a way that we can't even imagine to the nth degree. That Christ has so conquered that even the tribulation is going to show. He's going to pour all his wrath out on those that persecute Christians and who don't repent. He's going to pour all his wrath out. God's going to get so much glory. Believers are going to be vindicated in glory forever. The saints cry out in Revelation, How long, O God, holy and true until you avenge our blood on those who have spilled it on the earth? And he says, Wait a little while longer and you'll see that you're more than conquerors. And, and no matter what circumstances come into our life, no matter what hand God deals us, some of us have been dealt very easy hands compared to others. And you know what? Those who have been helped, dealt more difficult lots in life, they, they learn more of God's mercy and more of his love and more of his care in this life. Even in this life, there's a, 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 a gaining and, and a realization of the more than conqueror as we go through the trials. This is how the martyrs could sing hymns when they were burning at the stakes. This is how John Bunyan in prison could say, if it were lawful, I would pray for more suffering that I might know more of the comfort. I want to close this morning with this. First of all, if you're not in Christ, there is condemnation. There will be condemnation if you're not in Christ Jesus. And it will endure forever. And the law will stand against you, and God will stand against you. And so, notice those qualifications. Christ Jesus died for us, for the elect, for those that the Father gave him. And, and that means you need Jesus Christ. And you need to repent of your sins and turn to him. I've been thinking about repentance a lot lately in my own life. What what is real repentance? What what does it really look like to be trusting Jesus? And and everywhere the scripture is saying, turn and go to him and receive him. Hold out empty hands. Receive and rest in the finished work of Jesus. Say, I am a sinner. I am undone. And I need the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. If you are one who has done that and if you are one who, who is doing that, This is the most comforting thing God can say to you ever. How do you know? How can you be assured that God loves you? That's the big, let me tell you, that's the million-dollar question. Every universalistic church, false religion, God loves everybody. No, he doesn't. Not savingly. God does not love everybody savingly because God sends sinners to hell. But God loves his people with an everlasting love not because of anything in them. And he loved them and he sent his son to die for them. And if you are trusting Jesus Christ and you, are, and you see by faith that God did not spare his own son but gave him up for you, you can be assured the moment you cast your eyes on Jesus that God has loved you with an everlasting love, that there is no condemnation. I'm going to read this Calvin quote. Believers are very far from being involved in the danger of condemnation. Since Christ, by expiating their sins, has anticipated the judgment of God and by his intercession not only abolishes death, but also covers our sins in oblivion so that they come not to an account. Legally, God has wiped away every one of your sins before his presence. Past, present, future. Legally, they have been taken out. There's no condemnation. Finally, I want to encourage us to be meditating on what it might mean in our lives that even now we are more than conquerors, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what challenges, marital problems, uh, health problems, work problems, interpersonal problems, whatever's going on, you are more than a conqueror through him who loved you. God has set all those things in your life and has arranged them perfectly. If you're in Christ, because he loves you. And he wants you to know that even as you go through those things, you are already more than a conqueror and that you will realize the full victory of Christ on Judgment Day. You will realize the full manifestation of what that means over Satan, over the world, even over people in the church that might try to condemn you. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for such a magnificent word for us. We thank you that by it you quiet our consciences. We thank you, Lord, that we can face trials and challenges, and instead of feeling defeated or unloved by you, we can face them knowing that you have not spared your own son, that you gave up the greatest possession, um, the, the thing most dear to yourself you have given for us. You have given him up and you forsook him, that we might be accepted. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for our justification. We thank you that we are righteous in you and that there is no condemnation for us. We pray that you would continue to do a work of grace in our lives and that you would fill us with hope and peace and joy in believing. We pray, Father, that you would cause these truths to resonate in our minds and hearts this week ahead. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.